0: You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett.
1: Welcome to Future Proof Workplace. Thanks for joining us again this week. How are you, Morag? I am good. Thank you very much, Linda. How about yourself? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Had a very uh, productive week and busy week, and getting ready to do a uh, culture conference in, uh, on October third. Ooh, that uh, sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be very cool. It's a great conference. If people haven't. Um. Uh, uh, looked at it go to human synergistics website and you can take a look um lot of interesting speakers and, uh, you know, as you know, Morag, culture is one of our big factors in Future Proof, right?
2: It is, absolutely. And I've actually been building some of the factors for the 21st century leader into a program that I'm designing for an oil company. So there's a traditional bureaucratic command and control environment. They're looking to influence their culture, but also build the capabilities of their leaders within the organization. So it's been a productive
1: and fun week for both of us, by the sound of things. Yeah. very cool. Well, you know, last week, as you know, I was with the Silicon Valley uh, startup and they were so great, you know, a whole bunch of brilliant engineers and doctors. And they were so worried that they would become like an Uber or a GoDaddy and not have the right culture going forward. And I really give the CEO a lot of credit. I mean, we worked through this, the whole picture of what the culture needed to be and the values and the behaviors. It was really quite exciting. So if if you don't like the culture you have you got to dig in and change it, right, Morag? Yes,
2: you you do. And of course, we've got another headline, haven't we, with another company. It's actually impacted me that has uh, maybe got some lost focus on their leadership and their culture with the news from Equifax and the 143 million people, of which I am one, um, Mm -hmm. who have had their personal data released and apparently on the dark web. And as you read the story, it's taken a month for it to get to the innocent by standards like myself so that we can do something to protect our financial integrity. But in the meantime, some leaders at that company did find the time to actually sell $2 million worth of stock. Isn't that amazing? How does that happen?
1: Uh, you know, because they're not living their values. And, and, and we all know, as we say in the book, it's all about Right? It is. And unfortunately, maybe they are living
2: their values, and that's exactly what drove them. But in the end, it's the 143 million consumers who are potentially impacted by that um, short sighted approach to leadership. It- Times need to change. But then there's also the, well, how do you then empower leaders within the organization to challenge up, to speak with candor, to uh, ensure that processes and systems are as secure as they're being advertised to the outside world. But we'll see how this one plays out. Yeah, we will see. How did you find out? You were, uh, what, did they send you a notice or something? Oh, good grief, no. Oh, no, 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 Linda. You find out through social media that something's going on and there is a website that you can can go and check. And it's a very obscure, very small print. In fact, it's identical. There's two screens that come back when you put in the information they ask for. And it either says your, your information does not appear, again, does not appear to have been impacted, or it says your information may have been released. And they are so, like, you could easily miss it. So, wow. I found out through social media. So maybe I have to remove my skepticism of social media and say thank you, Facebook, because yeah. I saw it in the feed and that's how I what find it out. What made, made you look out
1: of curiosity?
2: Oh, what well, well, Facebook, because I was procrastinating on the day and I was looking at oh. cat videos like everybody else. <laughs> um, what made me go and check? Well, because we all have our data there and if there's 143 million people impacted, I might be one of them. And today my numbers came up, so maybe I need to get a Powerball ticket. Wow, I you should I have sure i get a Powerball, and, and you've motivated me to check. Yes, My you goodness. should. I'll send you the link afterwards, and the same oh. for our guest, Liz, I will send that to you too. I oh. know you've been busy with Pluff um, Mud, but you'll share yes. more about that when we bring you in. So Linda, why what? don't you introduce our guest for the week?
1: Yeah, that That is that is great, because both Liz and I are, are ex-Californians who have moved to uh, North Carolina, and, uh, you know, they used to say on the East West Coast, oh, you're going to go, you're going to go to the East Coast, there are hurricanes. And on the East Coast, when you move to the West Coast, they say, oh, you're going to go to the West Coast, there's earthquakes. So no matter where you go, there's always something. And it seems like climate change is uh, is here. So, Liz, it's so exciting to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad, so let glad me to give be here. You- let me give you a little lead in so liz guthrie is uh, guthridge is really one of these exceptional individuals she has her own consulting firm connect um, she has worked with some of the best and the brightest in the field and area of communication and relationships, which is why we have her on, because relationships is one of our key factors for the 21st century, which requires excellent communication. She's worked with Roger Dupree at Mercedelta, Delta uh, in employee com- communications with BJ Fogg and behavior design and uh, many other people who have influenced her, uh, including David Nadler. Um, She's really a pioneer in organizational change and really one of these exceptional thought leaders. Liz has a couple of great books, and I love Liz. You know, I got this, um, actually, the the title for the show uh, from you. Um, which I think is really great. You also use a lot of neuroscience in what you do today, so I think that that's fascinating. So let's jump in and talk.
3: Mm. Sounds good.
1: So let's let's give our in, our listeners some insight into your background and how you got started in this field. Sure. I originally wanted to be
3: a journalist, especially an investigative reporter. And I had a great opportunity when I was in school to actually work for a newspaper as an intern. And I got no pay, but I got class credit. So it seemed like a fair bargain. Yeah. And what I discovered was I was really too opinionated to be a really effective journalist. And I did <laughs> not like small-town living, which is where a lot of journalists need, need to begin. So I started thinking about, okay, what could I do instead? And I'd had a wonderful opportunity while in school to be an intern for Amoco, which is now part of, of BP. And I was in the public um, government affairs group doing employee communication, among some other things. And I thought, you know, this makes a more sensible route for me because then I really enjoyed organizations. And I felt I could really have an impact on kind of being a liaison between employees and leaders on the organization. So that's really what what jump-started me in my career. And then I went into consulting because I really couldn't commit to an industry. I really like working with lots of different organizations and different industries. And then I realized that employee communication, while it can be very powerful, you cannot effect change just with communication. You need to have more things working for you, so I moved into change management and change leadership, and that really also got me the impetus to do the neuroscience piece because I realized more and more people were asking me to coach, and being a boomer, I didn't really want to coach without any of the training, so I did the two-for-one. I did the training program through David Rock of the Neuroleadership Institute, so I got the neuroleadership background, and then I was also able to serve as, when he had his education program. I was able to serve as a teaching assistant for them. So I did did his executive master's and his certificate and got a good grounding. So now I really, in a sense, combined communication, I combined the behavior design from BJ Fogg, and then the neuroscience.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So it's really clear that you've, you know, you've worked from, but, which by the way, you and I share, I I know worked with Roger Dupree way back when, just a question, is he still, is he still with us? Yes. He just celebrated his birthday.
3: Wow. He just, he was just featured in an employee communication, the disruption of employee communication guidebook. Yeah, he's still, and he's still with his, you know, one of the wonderful, um, things i learned from him was um the importance of linking employee communication to the business
1: yeah he does a great job on that that whole circle of communication it's really an organizational change model right right so morag i know you have a question
2: Well, I know I've been listening and thinking about the names. I'm going to sum it up for our listeners. You're a big deal. You're a big deal, Liz, and I'm looking forward to listening to more. But neuroscience, it's a phrase that I've heard, and I haven't done a lot of research, but for many people, as soon as you start talking about neuroscience and brain science, um. The Machiavellian approach or reaction tends to come in as to, okay, what does this mean? so for for those of us in a corporate environment, how does neuroscience impact the world of work?
3: So it impacts the world of work because if you know how our brain is wired, you can really help people as opposed to hurt them. So, for example, one of the big ahas for me was recognizing that we are really wired for distraction and the status quo. So, it's very easy for us to be mental couch potatoes. And... The reason for that is that we're always, our unconsciousness is always scanning, looking for the danger, looking for the lion and the tiger and the bear, oh my. And so it takes a lot to get us to really focus on what we need to do. So in some respects, it's pretty amazing that we get as much done as we we really should. So if you understand the brain science, rather than threaten people, you're going to put them in a more toward state which makes them feeling more open and curious and gets them to think better and perform better i mean david rock has done some work showing that people will say that only about 10% of their good thinking is done at work mm-hmm. and which is a yeah. really horrible statistic i mean we really when you and you start realizing when you start understanding neuroscience you realize that we have made I mean, a lot of the ways we work are really bad for us. You know, these meetings that go on for hours, um, not taking, you know, quick breaks. I mean, we can really to hold focus. It's only about 20 minutes before we need to to switch to something else. Uh Well,
1: that is my problem. So oh, yeah. I was going to say,
2: it was interesting, if we only do 10% of our best thinking at work, does this does that mean that neuroscience is answering why I have my best ideas when I'm in the shower or whatever, yes. when I'm not oh exactly at work, so I'm uh, distracted exactly. by something else, okay? Right,
3: right, there's really, I mean, you shower heads, there's a reason why if you're a shower head, you get really great ideas, because you're, you're not thinking about the problem, you're you know, focused on getting clean, you're relaxed, you're feeling good and all of that, and then Your brain makes these connections for you. They're like, Mm -hmm. wow, that's a great insight. I'll have to work on
2: that. So earlier you talked about the fact that you talked about fight and flight, you know, the the lions and tigers and whatever, oh my. Um, And you're right, in the workplace, unless you're working in the zoo, you're not going to come across the the literal definition of those. But to your point, there are things that trigger us, that cause us to be stressed, whether we're aware of it or not, and potentially react in a way that Undermines our success. So, can you give some examples of modern-day workplace triggers that cause that fight-or-flight response in any of us?
1: Sure. Question, Maura. Mm. So.
3: a lot of these things happen around meetings. So, for mm-hmm. example, if you are not invited to a meeting, if you're feeling excluded, that can make you feel very threatened about your role in the organization, your role on the team, your contributions. Yes. If you are If you are at the meeting and somebody talks over you, that yes. too can feel very threatening. Mm-hmm. If somebody... This is your idea, or if somebody claims your idea as their own, that can also feel make you feel very threatened. Okay. And you will shut down.
2: So it's interesting when you talk about not being included. I literally had a colleague who was not included in some stuff and her boss said it's not that we're not included and it's not that we are excluding you. It's just that we're not including you, which I think just added to her stress at the time around, well, what does that mean? So when when we're stressed, say we're, there is that meeting we haven't been invited to, we can see everybody's in a huddle, we're wondering what's going on, or maybe we're giving a presentation and it's not quite going to plan and you can feel your heart rate starting to go up. What does the fight or flight response tend to look like in the workplace? Because I'm sure that in most workplaces, it's discouraged to actually use fisticuffs and we certainly don't strap on the Nikes and run away, but fight or flight still shuts us down. So what does that look like?
3: Yeah, in, so the, shutting,
2: the shutting of the di-
3: down means that you are going to be in a much more manner of protecting yourself. So you're not going to be open to new ideas. You're going to be um, much more um, defensive about things that people might say to you. You can also just you'll you'll not be able to control your emotions as well. You may snap, or you may get very quiet. Just depends upon how you tend to to be um, when you're under stress, because it can be a very stressful situation. I mean, a lot of people can. Over time, control these things so people might not see that people are under stress or nervous or all of that, but still, it's not your best you performing.
1: So, you know, the name of the show actually is with mean, a couple of observations, um, Liz. One is, you know, when you listed out those things that um, uh, people do uh, that that causes the triggers. There's been a lot of research, and women in those kinds of senior roles experience that a lot, where they're talked over. Um, their idea is, I mean, I think Sheryl Sandberg talked about right. this a lot. Um, what's what's your what's your thoughts about that? What can we do when it happens? And there,
2: you see, I nearly overtalked you, and you could have role modelled it. But what do we do <laughs> in the moment so that we stay at our best, but not necessarily shut the other person down in an inappropriate way? But we need to get ourselves back um, articulate and involved in the debate. So what? Right,
3: and it's a ch- it's a challenge. I mean, because it's it happens to me too. It happens I'm sure it happens to the two of you, and it happens, I think, to to all of us. And so I think. In my coaching situations, what I do a lot of with the individuals I coach, and fair number are, are women who have these issues as well, is to figure out, okay, how awful are these incidents? What are the risks, you know, high-risk situations, low-risk situations? And what can you do that you will feel be true to yourself yeah. and not put you in a danger spot? So, for example… Um, Making, um, you know, things that happen, just making notes and looking for ways to to um, write things down, come back, talk to people afterwards. I mean, you don't want to have meetings outside of meetings. Right. But nonetheless, sometimes you – because I think the other thing, too, that has helped me an awful lot, let me back up with this, is understanding the brain science. Because we are all – we all have biases, as one of my professors says. If you have a brain, you're biased. Ooh. And these biases come up in different ways. And a lot of people, especially men, do not recognize what they're doing. They don't see it because it's our unconsciousness at work. So understanding that has given me more empathy and, um, so I tend to look more for openings. And sometimes you can joke about it. Sometimes, you know, you can't or just look for other ways to to show that you have that you are value. So, for example, um, I was talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about how to have people feel the courage to speak up and this idea that you may not be the smartest person in the room you might not be the most senior person in the room but think about what else you have to offer you may have the freshest ideas you may be the closest to the customer and all of these things will have value so look to to for entries to talk about okay based on blah 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 you know my experience my exposure blah 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 i can offer this and yes. um but it's it's a long slog.
1: It is a long slog. It's and it's and it's not easy. And particularly when the brain is wired uh, in those ways to make you feel defensive. But you know, you you talked about innovation, and and you know, there isn't a company around today that isn't recognizing that they have to be highly innovative. And so it seems to me that this whole discussion about the brain and bias and how we treat people at work. Mm-hmm. Um, has a lot to do with innovation. And, you know, we called this show, and this really came from you, Liz, I should have said it in the very beginning, is blue sky thinking, you know, is great. How do you lead to a green pasture action? And what I'd like to do is, you know, how do you move from this sort of potential innovative environment to really making it happen? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah, because that's the the million dollar question for so many of us. Yeah. And, of course, I now just lost my train of thought about that. I was going to make.
2: Well, let's make start a point. with <laughs> what's what's blue sky thinking? Because again, I'm assuming I'm making assumptions as to what that means as I look out at the Colorado afternoon, and it's a beautiful blue sky with some white puffy clouds. But what is blue sky thinking when you're talking about it in this context?
3: So, to me, the blue. Thank you for for clarifying because that's good because I always believe in clarification. To me, the blue sky thinking is very much what you all are talking about in your your book, in that you, the old ways of working don't work anymore. So you need to challenge the status quo all the time. And so this idea of the blue sky is just making yourself open to reflecting and looking up and thinking, can we do this differently? Should we do it differently? Mm,
2: Reimagining.
3: Reimagining. Yep. Yeah. Okay, and I chose you know the, the blue sky and the and the green greener pastures, again is this idea of color, which is very brain friendly for us, and this idea of trying to visualize. So this idea when you know when you were many of us were kids, we would sit on the on the ground looking up at the sky, and be and dream. Mm-hmm. And so this ability to just open up and and dream.
2: Uh, so your green pasture action is turning those ideas from just hot air and talk which can happen a lot of times into so what are we going to do to make all or some of that a reality and bridging that gap is to your point the million dollar question that many organizations and individuals are seeking to do as we reimagine our careers and as we reimagine how we can contribute to society so tell us about the communication and the personal commitment the role of the leader in bridging blue sky and green pasture
3: Well, it's interesting you say it's a leader. I don't necessarily know if it's always the individual at the top. I think we Mm -hmm. all have a leadership role. So, for example, one of the things I've been talking about for a while now, and it really came up recently with the Google engineer, the James Damore, who um, is that – If you're on a STEM team, so basically a lot of science, technology, engineering, and math people, you can really benefit by having a leaf. And a leaf is someone who listens, someone who has empathy, someone who can articulate what the team is doing, and somebody who also can facilitate.
2: All right, say that again. Leaf stands for somebody who can listen. Listen. Yeah. Who and, and somebody who
3: can listen can well bridge yeah ideas from people the the and the um the e E. is the empathy okay putting yourself in other people's shoes to understand their situation okay which is important for teamwork yep the a is the articulate right and then the f is the facilitate
2: facilitate oh i like that be a leaf again, to your point, that you can be a leaf. You can listen, have empathy, articulate the vision, and facilitate the conversation or the action wherever you are in the organization. Exactly. But the trick is to make sure
3: that teams are diverse mm-hmm. and have a variety of skills. And mm-hmm. leaders are just now starting to recognize, I like say leaders just now, but more and more people are now starting to recognize the value. And the research is really backing this up that you it really helps to have people who um, will take time to ensure that people are taking turns talking, um, mm-hmm. there's higher-than-normal social intelligence, yeah. and keeping keeping some harmony Okay. Um, on, the, on the team. And by the way, don't you know, I mean, that often is women, but it doesn't have to be. But no. It, you, it helps to have people play, play those roles.
2: And it's interesting because a lot of the teams that Linda and I work with – often lose sight of the unproductive behaviors. And you have the most wonderful, I'm, I'm going to adopt it and keep it as my pet and take it home. But you have the most wonderful way of describing those equivalent of the elephant in the room. And you call them the silent sugar-coated moose. Sounds like candy. But maybe yes. not. But tell us, <laughs> no, no. so the silent sugar coated moose, it's just a wonderful, I just love it. So tell us more, what's the silent sugar coated moose? So it's basically a mutated species of the <laughs> elephant in the room
3: or the moose on the table. Yep. And I came up with this idea because one of the things that's very helpful, I mean, although I came up this way before I studied neuroscience, but this idea of naming something, because sometimes mm-hmm. it's easier for people to name things than it is to, to call it out and say, you know, you're being pretty. Pretty nasty to me, mm-hmm. but um, the moose is the thing that nobody really wants to acknowledge. Even though the moose is right there, and silent moose don't allow you to speak up. They just yeah. encourage the, you. You just don't say a word. And then the other problem is that they're often sugarcoating. So people are wanting to make something positive out of something that's really challenging. Yes, and um, when people really do need straight talk, and often what I will do when I'm facilitating a meeting, generally a group of probably fifteen or 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 not you know less fewer, is to have different size stuffed moose, <laughs> and say if you feel like you need to speak out and you're a little uncomfortable, why don't you just grab a moose and t- grab and a moose. Eat- say it to the moose and choose the size moose depending upon how big of a of a problem you think this is. Isn't and people it? will often guffaw at me. Yes. But when it comes time, I see some hesitation. I
2: say, is this a moose moment?
3: They <laughs> go, well, yes. We like is it, the what? alliteration.
2: Take it. Yeah, is take it. it. Take a yeah, we are. We're all grown adults and yet we very quickly regress to essentially junior high or elementary school behavior of we defer to the most powerful or the loudest voice in the room, wrong though it may be in the moment. And then, of course, later on, if any of us so any of our listeners, if you've ever gone home or had some feedback and you've been and you say in response, well, I wish I'd known they felt that way or I wish somebody had told me, then going back to your leaf analogy, it implies that I'm not listening, I don't have empathy. I may be a little too articulate in driving the conversation and therefore the onus is on me to slow down. But of course, the team owns culpable negligence here because we learn to keep quiet when we know we should speak up. So the moose, I like the idea of the the stuffed moose or a different way because as facilitators, Liz, we can obviously sometimes help break that ice and flag when those default behaviors are happening.
3: Right. And I think it's also important to recognize, too, the differences between extroverts and introverts. Mm, same and more And for me, reading Susan Cain's book, Quiet, was just a, an amazing aha moment. Um, I happen to be an extrovert who does have quite a few introvert characteristics, but I recognized when reading that book that I was facilitating a lot of meetings as if everybody in the room was an extrovert Mm -hmm. and a lot of introverts are just not comfortable speaking up and out and so that's why I now include a lot of exercises that will include people can write things on post-it notes and then we post them on the wall and do a gallery walk and discuss
2: things and all of that. And and sometimes it's not necessarily comfort because I know plenty of introverts who are successful CEOs can do the all hands meeting, speak at conferences in front of a thousand people. They've got no problem saying no. Um, I'm married to a a, a very strong uh, introvert and he he would tell me that it's, I don't know when it's my turn to speak. And by the time it's my turn to speak, because all the introverts, extroverts, and that's me included, are chatting, 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 chatting. By the time there is a break in the conversation, the conversation has has moved on the point I was going to make is no longer relevant therefore I say nothing which then unfortunately in the extrovert's mind just further perpetuates the introverts have nothing to say mm-hmm. whereas in fact it's, it's back to me as an extrovert learning to listen and look for those cues so that I can facilitate to your point the involvement of everybody and the diversity of thought um, with, around the table exactly exactly so it's interesting. So talk about the neuroscience. What have been some of the, the latest discoveries in terms of the brain science then and how that does impact the communication process and how we can learn from it and enhance communication within teams?
3: I think it, for a lot of this, it's some very simple basics that we need just to pay attention to. So for example, um naming things is really helpful for people in terms of like cutting through the clutter and getting people to think about things. So you name emotions, you name your programs, you name your goals, and that just helps people improve their focus. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, Another thing to do is to be more positive than negative. I mean, you you don't want to again sugarcoat things. That's the wrong thing to do. But you look for ways. Look for things to be positive about, even when you're talking about challenging topics. And that just puts people at ease to make them be more open and more curious. Mm-hmm.
2: It might be um, a, a tactic like, well, if I were in your shoes or if I was going through this experience, here's what I might be thinking or questions I might have, and then make it safe for others to raise those controversial topics or their own concerns.
3: Right. And share, as a leader, share your own vulnerability. You know, I, I don't know all the answers. Um, I'm, <laughs> what I'm doing is I'm listening to others. I'm asking questions and and all of that. Um, the other thing I think is helpful is to use metaphors. Mm-hmm. The brain seems to be in, to be um, wired to really um, pay attention to metaphors. And it's a great way to connect the abstract to the concrete. Um, I have – it's not easy for – just me personally, it's not easy for me to create metaphors. But I found that when I do, they are um, – they're really powerful, and actually, I have found one metaphor that's been great for me to be able oh, to yes. say to say no to people, which is um, I will when I feel like I'm getting like way too much work or work that's not a request that are not in my kind of wheelhouse, if you will. Um, I'll say to people, "Well, that's interesting. I'd like to help." But that's going to make me feel more like popcorn. And these days, I need to be more like risotto. I need to be fully blended.
2: Okay. Well, that kind of, I'm going to pivot slightly because Mm -hmm. being a good leader and having an even-keeled neuroscience and an approach to work is easy when things are going to plan less so when it's starting to hit the fan. And I know you wrote another book, Leading People Through Disasters, and I opened saying that you're dealing with plough mud so that you've had impact from the the recent hurricanes where you are. And this, I think, is the true test and mettle of leaders is how do you lead when um, things are not going to plan, when there's uncertainty or multiple opinions on what the solution should be. So, tell us a little bit about your book, Leading People Through Disasters, and then let's continue from there. Sure. So, the the book was written
3: shortly after Katrina. My co-author and I thought everything was – so much things were handled so poorly, especially regarding people during <laughs> Katrina. And so the book really is an action guide for preparing for and dealing with the human side of crisis. And geared towards getting a lot of HR people and leaders on how to deal with employees. And it's it's again more disaster. So the book really covers more things around the hurricanes, tornadoes, you know, natural disasters, shootings at work, um, all sorts of things like that. And it's, and certainly since the book came out about, you know, 10 years ago, we're certainly more in a VUCA state now with, you know, the world is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to have a roadmap for leaders. And one of the things I remember when doing the book and interviewing some of the people, I mean, my Co-author and I had been through a number of disasters ourselves, certainly had a lot to share, but we also interviewed quite a few others and then talked to, to experts. And one of the things that is so important is for people to take care of themselves. And you know, certainly what going on in, in with the cleanup after Hurricane Irma and Harvey right now—it's you know pretty challenging for people to find time to sleep, find time to um, to eat well, find time to exercise. But what we're seeing with the neuroscience is all of that is so important for both short-term health and long-term health, and for leaders to have to be resilient and to um, do well. Mm -hmm. they need to be able to take care of themselves that will help them have hope for the future and that will have them have them instill hope in the people they work with and the people they lead
2: So, that might be a good point to pause because uh, we need to go to an advert break. But when we come back, given that there are so many currently being impacted by natural disasters, I'd love to know what are the three things that people can do to self-care, but also to take care of their teams or the people around them so that they can remain resilient when – um, things are obviously very tough. So when we come back from the break, we're talking with Liz Guthridge, who is the founder of Connect Consulting, and we're talking about uh, blue sky thinking and turning it into green pass action. Stay with us, and we look forward to talking with you after the break.
0: Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought out keynote speakers, leadership development, and organization experts, and they can help you future proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit FutureProofWorkplace.com. Well, welcome
1: back. We're glad you're staying with us, and we're having a great conversation with Liz Guthridge, um, CEO of uh, Connect uh, Consulting. And um, you know, Morag, you and Liz were just having such a great conversation, and on (laughs) such a roll. I said, "Well, let's just let them go." That's uh, it's it's really. Really yeah, you, you, you were, were being a leaf. you were another. listening. You were demonstrating <laughs> was, the L. <laughs> I was taking copious notes actually Liz, <laughs> but, you know was, uh, was, was very interesting. but we, we uh, left it off where you said there are three things people can do to stay resilient uh, during a, a disaster. and, and, and you know let, let's explore that a little further.
3: Okay, great. So the top of my list is I have to confess is a pet peeve of mine, is leaders need to recognize that there is no getting back to normal. Right. And even this whole idea of talking about the new normal, like stop it. Because right. the new normal is gonna be in effect for like a next ten minutes and then something else is gonna change. So it's important just to acknowledge that you can't get back to the way things were before a disaster. I mean, look at the Key West. That's not going to be the same. Houston's not going to be the same. It's going to be different. Hopefully it's going to be better. It's definitely going to be different. And so you need to um, encourage everybody to just create a new way of being, a new way of doing things. And again, look for ways to make things. This is your opportunity. You've got to to, to do things to do things differently. My second thing is look for ways to make life a little easier for people as they during the recovery process. So, for example, um, I'll do a shout out to my husband works for for a luxury um, firm um, women's clothing and
1: oh really
3: yes yes to say more about
1: that no Saint
3: John Knits <laughs> They had had a policy that if um, they had to close the stores and you couldn't work, you um, had to use your vacation days. Wow. And most of the the um, boutique wardrobe assistant or boutique people are on commission. So in a sense, that's a double whammy. Not only yeah. are you not getting commissions when the stores is closed, but then you're having to use your vacation to pay. And they recognized that that was really challenging for people. So. Especially they have quite a few stores in um, Florida and Charleston, South Carolina, right. which is where we live, yep. that people are going to be able to, to they're just it's going to be days off and they'll still have all their vacation time which I think is a great, great way to uh, make people feel better about the situation. Yeah. And um, looking for other ways to, um, you know, in terms of uh, food, how, making sure that asking people about their families, um, because that often is, is is actually the bigger worry than work. Work can sometimes be a respite for people to um, come to work when even when the situation's bad at home in terms of no power or whatever. And then the third thing is to communicate a lot. And which kind of goes in the face of what I've been... Sometimes I think we... I'm a big believer in that the communication should be content-rich, not content-free. But sometimes in these disasters, it still helps to have a lot of communication. So people just know that there's somebody out there who cares about them and is looking into things and it's working. And because... Disasters are still more so than other types of leadership situations. They're still pretty much traditional control. I mean, you need to have somebody in charge. Um, you, know, as you as we're seeing in, in other lines of, of leadership, it's much more um, in the you know from the edges and much more involvement. But um, it's still a little bit more command and control in uh, natural disasters.
1: Yeah. You know, that sort of brings us full circle uh, here, Liz, because really one of your key specialties is really focusing on communication. And I you know, know that one of the things that we see leaders don't do enough in just about every circumstance is not communicate enough. They make an assumption. And I think this brings in the neuroscience factor as well, that, you know, they say something once or twice and everybody gets the picture the way they get it and they <laughs> don't. Um, So I I have two questions for you, and I want to follow on this one and talk a little bit about Power Noodle. But how do you get leaders to understand and to really leverage communication in a positive way so that they're not dominating, but they are, in fact, helping people make sense out of the chaos that's around them?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And and some leaders have it naturally which is great but others have this reticence and you know used to be and I'm, I am am seeing some positive changes because it used to be people did not want to communicate until they knew everything and today it's hard to know everything so you need to do things in a much more iterative fashion one of the things that I'm having more success with is telling people leaders that you need to talk about the why the what and the how and often people tend to want to focus on the what and yet, the why is really important because when people, and from the neuroscience perspective, when people know the why, they're much more inclined to get motivated, and especially if the why syncs up with their values and with their their purpose. And then the how piece is the how do you get things done, which is that activation that going from the from the the. Um, blue sky, thinking to the the greener pasture action. How are you going to get this done? And, and again, some leaders are much more comfortable operating at 50,000 feet as opposed to um, being in the trenches with the how, but at least say, okay, I don't know the how now, but here's how we're going to get to the how. and um, And giving people, this is where it helps to have more interactions. This is where I think, too, social media has helped a bit internally yeah. as well as people will just yeah. start asking questions and leaders will start recognizing, oh my gosh, there's a lot of stuff out there that I need to cover people because just people don't just don't know.
1: It. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great point, Liz, because, the, you know, leveraging social media, I think, Morag, like you said this earlier, is, you know, you wouldn't have known about Equifax. I mean, you can begin to see the questions that people really have, which you couldn't see a 10, five years ago. Right, right. And, and that's a good thing because people yes. are getting a sense of, you know, the workforce may be a little confused. And, and, and uh, you know, we make a lot of assumptions that people do see things the same way we see them or understand them the same way that we understand them. And they really don't. But this leads me to my next question for you. Um, You know, there's a lot of people out there doing sort of technology apps to help with decision making and help with communication and all of this kind of stuff. And in many ways, some of them seem to be, you know, getting in the way of people, um, uh, getting in the way of people communicating with each other. But tell us about this power noodle, because I was intrigued by it when I saw it and I uh, saw it in your material. So what's that all about? How does that help? So, Power Noodle and Waggle and a few
3: of these other tools can be very helpful if used well. And technology can make it easier for people, including introverts. So, what I like about these systems is that when you have time and you have your ideas, you can weigh in. You don't have to do it at a particular time in a particular room. So this is a great way to get more people involved when it's easy for them to do it. And I I keep coming back to, and one of the big learnings I had working with BJ Fogg is It's hard for people to get things done oftentimes because they've got so many competing priorities and they've got so much work to do. So if you can make things simple, social and fun to do, not always fun and work, but still you can try, you've got a much better shot at getting people involved and you can get, and we we talked about earlier, the more involvement, the more diversity, the the better the solutions. Mm -hmm. And so on the tech front, I mean, you've got, Some people who love tech and, you know, find these things fun to work with. Other people don't. However, I mean, I've had a group of social workers who work for transplant um, patients, you know, so transplanting organs and things Uh who are not technology oriented, but but we've worked with them on, on visions and values through power noodle and they were able to, this, these were all over the United States, various um, transplant hospitals. They were able to you know, carve out time to weigh in and share what they thought were the key values for their professional association and we use that to help strengthen their, their association.
1: That's very cool. Yeah, Liz, the one thing that struck me, too, was that you could really see the pockets where people weren't communicating, mm-hmm. and I really liked that, because I think a lot of leaders, you know, to the earlier conversation, Morag, that you you guys were having about introverts and extroverts, you know, somebody's an introvert, they're kind of like, they're just rolling over, and they're having a great old time, and they're not really paying attention to the fact that other people are not necessarily engaged. And this software seems to be able to uh, point point out big chunks of gaps in that area. Did did I get that right? Well, from the standpoint of, I wouldn't say
3: it points out, but what it does do is, you know, back to this idea, you've got it. you know, the, the ideas in the shower um, or you're on a walk and you've got some great ideas. You don't have to wait to come back to a meeting to share those. You could just log in on the app and express your point of view.
1: Interesting.
2: So, it's the ultimate in social intelligence and the collaboration of thoughts and knowledge that might be in different parts of your organization, but bringing them in a way that uh, allow everybody to learn and grow from them. It's fascinating. It'll be interesting to see how that continues to evolve and impact the how and where work gets done.
3: Right. Because I think it's really, really important for global organizations because, you know, it's it's too easy to default to, oh, let's pull a group of people, a focus group of people at headquarters or in one of our big... one of our Big offices or something, and you tend to not think about people in all the regions of the world, and it's often very difficult to find you know good times for conference calls and all of that. So these types of tools can just like you know can make it just feeling like they can participate.
1: Yeah, it really really have a place used well.
2: Yes. So we're coming to the end of the show. In a moment, I'm going to ask you how people can get in touch with you. But I have one final question. It's come from a listener, actually, who's texted it in. So going back to your LEAF analogy, the listen empathy articulate and facilitate and the question goes to those middle two letters um, treating our colleagues with empathy and being able to be articulate and share our point of view and the question they had so I need your headline answer here we have two minutes is how do you find the correct things to say to people especially when they're going through tough times what's one one nugget you'd have for demonstrating empathy and saying the right thing
3: so, with empathy, the more important thing is to put yourself in other people's shoes and apply the platinum rule, mm-hmm. not how you want to be treated, but how you think they want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And that this is more of a headline, unfortunately. it's <laughs> so you may not know the person as well, however, try to find something that you think that will That person will respond to,
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and just, and I mean, a great book to read about this is um, Cheryl Sandberg's book Option B. Right, great book.
2: Okay, well, that's what we're going to suggest that people do. So, Liz, it's been a fascinating conversation that we've had with you. How can our listeners get in touch with you if they'd like to continue the conversation?
3: Thank you for asking. So I'm active on Twitter and it's Liz, L I Z G U T H R I D G E. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So the, you know, the LinkedIn, just look Liz Guthridge. And then my email, which is a rather long one, is liz.guthridge, again, G U T H R I D G E, at Connect
2: Okay. Well, Liz, on behalf of Linda and I, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. It's been a pleasure um, talking with you, learning a little bit about neuroscience and le- learning about leading through disasters, etc. And for those of you listening, thank you again for joining Linda and I on the Future Proof Workplace. We look forward to uh, hearing and sharing with you again next week. Be safe. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Liz. It was a great show. Appreciate it.
0: This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.